Yeah. I'm, I'm slowly learning Swahili and Asante Sana is thank you. And uh, so that's, that's all I got right now, but I'll continue on. But uh, that's why we wanted you to see that, to say thank you because of your generosity, because of your willingness to partner with God and what he's doing. And that's really what we feel like that, that God is a, I think we forget a lot of times God is a global God. He's working all over the world. And we just get so wrapped up in our little you know, slice of it that we forget that he's literally working all over the world. And it's a privilege to be a part of what he's doing there in Kenya. And so we want to continue to remind you about that because like you said, he, we said, that was the church that we built, our church. That's Revolution Church Kikiring. And they're seven hours ahead of us, so they've already met today. Uh, but then they're training up other pastors to go out into other communities beyond that to, to take the gospel. And so it really is a privilege and an honor and, and as we pray in just a second to ask God to bless our time, we're going to ask God to also bless our brothers and sisters there as a part of our church and what God is doing there, all right? So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege and honor it is to, first of all, know you, to be your child, to have you as our father. And God, to be able to witness what you're doing in other parts of the world is just is simply breathtaking. And so God, thank you for Kenya. Thank you for loving Kenya more than we do, the people there. And God, thank you for our partnership with Serve, who is ministering there on a daily basis from the orphanage through feeding people all throughout the community of the Northwest part there. And God, thank you for the partnership we get to have in taking the gospel forward and planting churches. And we pray for Pastor Jackson specifically. Would you continue to give him grace and energy and wisdom. It just amazes me to see what that man does. And so God, I pray that as you are leading him, that more pastors would be raised up and sent out to minister to people there. And God, as we open up your word here today, we ask that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear as always, God, because we know unless you show us, God, we are dead. And so God, we ask you to do that as we open your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we were last week, and we'll hang out there for a little bit. Then we'll go to Romans chapter 1. Uh, it's a very similar sermon as last week that we started in Matthew, then went to Romans. But we started this series last week, just in case you weren't here, but even if you were, I'll catch you up quickly, called Our Father. And we're doing this series for us to learn how to think rightly about who God is. Because if we think wrongly about God, then that has devastating consequences. So we want to think rightly about God. In fact, I shared a quote with you last week. I'm going to share it with you again. It's here on the screen by A.W. Tozer. It said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing is not our nationality, not our skin color, definitely not our political affiliations, definitely not the team that we root for on Saturdays and Sundays, all right? or any other day of a team that you root for, what's most important about us, most important is where we stand with God. What's most important about us is what we think about when we think about God. And so we're doing this series called Our Father, looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six, and not necessarily talking about how to pray, but looking at, okay, if he taught us to pray like this, then what does that mean about who God is, how we relate to him? So we're looking at that because we want to think rightly about God. We want to think rightly about who he is because God has revealed himself and the primary image he has used to reveal himself is one of a father. 
So we want us to think rightly about that. So let's go, Matthew chapter six, we're gonna be verse nine and 10. Just kind of build on where we left off last week. Jesus says this in verse nine. He said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now let's stop and, and chat here a little bit. I told you last week that the phrase our Father represents God's affection for us. That God loves us. And a lot of times when it comes to God, the way we think wrongly about him is on either side of the road, as I tell you, is a ditch. We think that God is love or that God is just authoritative, like he's just a tyrant. And, and either one of those ditches is wrong because we wrongly think, oh, God just loves me, but he would never command me to do something I wouldn't want to do. Or on the other side, we think he just commands me, but he doesn't love us. But Jesus introduced a new way of thinking about God because Jesus had an intimate relationship with God. And in the Old Testament, God would refer to himself as father, but the Jewish people would never refer back to him, especially in prayer, as a father, because that would somehow diminish him. In fact, if you look at any other world religion besides Christianity, no one talks about God with such intimate language. So Jesus taught us to start praying with God as our father, because he loves us deeply. And that's what that phrase means. And then he says in heaven, which means not only does he have affection for us, but he has authority over us. And it's not one of the other, it's both. And it's not 50-50, it's 100-100, just like Jesus. Jesus wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. You're like, well, that's impossible. Well, that's God. So God is 100% love as 1 John tells us, and he's 100% authority. And in those two coming together is what it means to have God as your father. And we started last week, we talked a lot more about his affection for us because a lot of us, as we discussed last week, we have daddy issues. We don't think that our earthly fathers love us and therefore we definitely don't think that our heavenly father does. But Jesus tells us to relate to God as a child relates to their father. And the best example we can give of that is our own children, right? I mean, I've got two kids, a 14-year-old and an eight, uh, I almost said 18-year-old. Ooh, I'm a heart attack up here. Uh, an eight-year-old. And when my kids come to the office, they don't have to call the office. They don't have to make an appointment. They don't have to say, is my father available? They just walk right in, wave to the secretary, wave to my assistant, and come right on into my office, just barge in like they own the place because they're my kids. Now, nobody else has that kind of access because you ain't my kid. Praise God, right? Like, but my kids have that access because I'm their dad. And here's what Jesus is saying when we talk about prayer. You have that kind of access now to the Father, you don't have to talk to a priest. You don't have to go to a religious person. You don't have to go through any other structures. You have a direct access into the throne room of God. And Hebrews tells us to approach it boldly. Because God loves us. Now in that, in that God loves us, it also means he has authority over us. Now this is the part that I think we struggle with a lot. Because... We have authority issues. And that's the title of this week's message. 
We have authority issues. We don't like human beings, and, and listen, I'm one of them, so you know, I'm Jason, I got a problem, right? We don't like other people telling us what to do. It's just human nature. We talked about that on Easter, that we think God is somehow holding out on us, and so therefore, when it comes to God having authority over us, we're immediately suspect. But I want us to understand something. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says, hallowed be your name. That means to be set apart as holy. He is showing us that God is utterly different from us and God has the right to command us. This is why he teaches us to pray rightly, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that word their kingdom means rule and reign of God. And so if there is a kingdom, then that means God is a king. He's in charge. He has authority. And the person who thinks rightly about God, as I hope to show you through these texts, the person who thinks rightly about God sees him not only as their dad, but sees him as their authority. Sees him as the one who has the sovereign right to command. And this is where most human, no, I shouldn't say most human beings, all human beings Struggle. And here's one of the roots of the struggle. And, and I've had conversations with a lot of you about this. And it's honest conversations. But we struggle with the, what we call the sovereignty of God, which means God's in complete control. God is authoritative. No one else is against him. And human free will. Human responsibility. A lot of people look at those two things like yin and yang, like God has got part and we got part. But I want you to understand something. When it comes to God's sovereign will and our human free will, we are not equal with him. He is sovereign over us. And one of the things that really leads to the biggest misunderstanding of us struggling with that is we misunderstand what it means to be free. We are free, but God is more free. Let me say it again. We are free, but God is more free. And the reason being is because God owes his genesis, his beginning, to no one because he has no beginning. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has always existed. And so therefore, when he created the world, the created order naturally submitted to him because he's over it. He's sovereign. He's free. We we are free to determine whether or not we will obey his commands. But listen to this. We are not free to determine our own commands. Now, let me break this down for you. A great philosopher and theologian who just recently went to be with Jesus, a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul, I would highly recommend him to all of you. Uh, uh, probably one of the most brilliant theologians and thinkers of the 20th and 21st century. And he has a ministry called Ligonier Ministries. I, again, I'd highly recommend it to you. I was listening to a sermon last Sunday, in fact, about his talking about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, because a lot of people wrestle with this. And he gave this explanation, probably the best explanation I've ever heard. And I was like, oh, that's it. So I want to I share it with you. And he talked about two words, the word autonomous and automobile. Autonomous automobile. You're like, what in the world do those have to do with the sovereignty of God and free will of man? I'll show you. Both of those are Latin words. The word auto means self. 
The word nomos, which is autonomos, that word nomos means law. And so that means self-law or the ability to self-govern. Now the word automobile, auto means self. Mobile means I can move. So cars are self-moving. That's why we call them automobiles. They can move on themselves until they run out of gas and then we move them and they're no longer automobiles, right? Like they, we move them. And so the idea of an automobile is this. When you're in a car, when you're in a vehicle, you can turn right, you can turn left, you can go straight, you can back up. You have the ability to move, to choose. But you wanna know what you don't have the ability to do? Is to create your own laws. You are not autonomous. God is autonomous. God is self-governing. But automobiles are not. Now think about this. That's a good thing. Can you imagine the Atlanta traffic if everybody made their own laws? I mean, just imagine that. It's already bad enough trying to follow the law. Everybody on the right side going this way, everybody on the, you know, going like this. Can you imagine if people on the, driving on the right side, you're like, you know what, I'm gonna drive on the left side today. You know what, I think that red light is a suggestion. <laughs> that speed limit, that is a suggestion. Where always, they won't give you a ticket for five miles over, right? Like, it's, it's, just, it's like a ballpark figure, you know? Can you imagine a world where automobiles were autonomous? Doing what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted? I don't want to live in that world, and neither do you. Just this last week, several of our pastors were um, on a trip to Texas, great country, and uh, we try to go back there as much as we can, and uh, the guys love Texas brisket now. I'm like, hallelujah, praise Jesus, right? And uh, so we were there, and we obviously flew in, we rented a car, we had a conference for a couple days, and... One of the pastors who is on staff, obviously, he was driving the car, and I won't mention his name, but he was up here earlier on stage, and um, <laughs> he was driving, and he's American, and as we were driving, we were laughing, because I, I have control issues, so I had to sit in the back seat, and so I don't, you know, become a, that driver that's telling him what to do, but it was funny, we were all laughing, because as he was driving, like, he, we would need to turn right, but he wasn't in the right lane, he was in the next to the right lane, so then he would cross two lanes, and when he did, going into this, the church that we were meeting at, you know, they have an entrance where you turn into the first lane, and then they have an exit where they go out that way, well, he just missed the entrance and went right into the exit. I mean, it was clearly marked, you know, all fire lane, red, like, okay, you see, and we're all laughing, we're like, Dude, you just went into the exit. He's like, yeah, I just kind of do what I want, right? Like, that's not what he said. But, but the idea of it was, that is, and I was telling him about, that's the perfect example of what I'm saying. That is living autonomously. Where exits become entrances. Now imagine the chaos that that would ensue. Thank God, by his grace, nobody was exiting, so we didn't have a head-on collision. And then we laughed because that, later that night, we were going through a parking lot to go to a store, and instead of following the, the direct ways to go, he just crossed every parking lot in there, like going all the way through. He just, uh, he's an entrepreneur, man, makes his own path, right? But, and obviously I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but here's what I'm saying. God 
never, hear me, never has he ever created an autonomous creature. And the reason why we struggle with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man is because we think freedom means autonomy. We think we have the freedom to determine what is good and what is bad. Remember the tree that God said don't touch? It was the knowledge of good and, good and evil. What does that mean? It wasn't that God was holding back. He was like, you don't have the sovereign right to determine what's good and evil. So you can't touch that tree because if you do, you'll always choose wrongly. So you cannot have an all-powerful God that is also not good. Because if he's not good, then he will use his power in unjust ways. I mean, how many tyrants and leaders in the world have we seen that they've got all the power, but they're not good? So God, hear me, God never created an autonomous creature who has the right to determine how they are going to live in that by creating their own laws. You do not have the ability to self-govern. What you do have is the ability to choose whether or not you will obey those laws. And we, again, we get that. Every day you get in the car, you choose entrance, exit. Which one? I don't know, it depends on how I'm feeling, right? Red light, is that a suggestion or is that a command? Yellow light, does that mean slow down or speed up? We all know what that means. It means speed up, right? <laughs> and so here's what God is saying. And, and, and Jesus is teaching us how to pray rightly by saying, I'm living in your world. This is your kingdom. You're the king, not me. This is your world. And I want your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that God's will is not done on earth because God is sovereign. His will is done. But what God has to do in this world is he has to work through even our wrong choices. And you see that all throughout the scriptures. One of the probably best examples is after Joseph got thrown into the pit by his brothers, then went into the prison, made it all the way to the palace. That's the sermon right there. Pit, prison, palace. I didn't come up with it. I heard another pastor. And the idea was all these bad things had happened, but even in that, God used the sinful choices of man to get Joseph where he wanted to be. And Joseph said this amazing line in Genesis 50 when he's speaking to his brothers. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So even in the evil choices, God's still sovereign, but understand, he gives you the ability to choose good or evil. That's the choice we have. We are free to make that choice, but God is more free to determine what is good and what is not. And if we'll understand that, then we won't wrestle with sovereignty and free will. We'll understand that God alone has the right to make laws. I do have a choice of whether or not I'm going to obey them. But human beings naturally, naturally we do not want to be controlled. We do not want somebody else telling us what to do. Now flip over to Romans chapter one and I'll show you what I mean by that. In Romans chapter one, Paul, again, I told you last week, Romans is arguably one of the greatest letters that he ever wrote. It's one of his greatest works. And in Romans chapter one, he's telling everything about, he's gonna get to the good news, but before he can get to the good news, he's gotta tell the bad news. And the bad news is all of us reject God. And so he's explaining that 
But in his explanation, there's a couple things I want to point out that describe why you and I try to act as though we are autonomous. Look at this in Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18, work our way down to verse 25. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, notice, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What Paul's saying here is he's building out a whole theology of understanding, which is so crucial when he says, listen, God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself as a father who loves us and has the right to command us. But men, because of their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. That word there, suppress, means to push down. It's the idea of, of getting on somebody and physically restraining them. And so he says what happens is our unrighteousness leads us to try to suppress the truth because we don't want someone else telling us we're wrong and God is mad about that. Now I'm gonna push you here and I'm gonna do this intentionally because you don't hear very many sermons today about the wrath of God. But Paul says, verse 18, very clearly, the wrath of God is revealed. I want you to understand something. God is mad. God's mad. This word here, wrath, means anger. God is upset. And this is when people are like, I don't want to talk about the wrath of God. Just, just give me some more on the love of God. I just, I just want love. God is love. Well, understand something. You can't have love without justice. And so when we talk about the wrath of God, and, and it, again, people are like, Old Testament's wrathful. New Testament is not. He's loving. In the Old Testament, he was just mad. In the New Testament, he's happy. No, you misunderstand God. In the Old Testament, yes, he was wrathful against sin. Yes, he would take people out who would sin against him. But he would also give people grace who didn't deserve it. And in the New Testament, yes, he gives grace. Yes, he loves people, but he's just as mad about sin. You want to know why? Because in the New Testament, he killed Jesus. So you want to know how God feels about sin? Obviously, he feels strong enough to sacrifice his own son and pour out all of his wrath. So God hates sin. You need to know that. And he hates sinners. This is when we make up phrases, we'll hate the sin, love the sinner. Listen, God doesn't throw the sin in hell. He throws the sinner in hell. You say, well, I thought God was love. Yes, he is love. Well, he just told me he hates sinners. Yes, he does. Which one is it? Yes. He hates sin. He hates unrighteous. But he loves us enough that he sent forth his son to become sin. So you want to know the wrath? Listen, you cannot know the love of God if you don't first know the wrath of God. The reason why is because if you don't understand that in Jesus, he satisfied all the wrath of God, then you won't think what he did was any big deal. But the Bible clearly says he poured out all of his wrath on his son. And he also said this, Paul says it later, if you're not in Jesus, the wrath of God still rests on you. My friends, I want you to understand something. There is a God and you will meet him and he will judge you. I don't, I don't like that. 
we'll make a new world. But don't you know that that's what we're trying to do? We're trying to make a new world. We're trying to suppress the truth. Paul goes on, look at this, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He goes on, look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, now listen to this, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Have you noticed the first image there is man? Because the, man, the image that, that man loves the most is not God, but his own. Mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged, now listen, the truth. That word there, the, is a definite article. So he didn't say a truth, the truth about God for a lie. And that word there, a, is all, is honestly the same word as the word the, and I think it's mistranslated. It should say the lie. Because there's only the truth and the lie. There's not multiple truths and multiple lies. There's one truth, God is sovereign. There's one lie, you don't need God. That's, isn't that what Satan said to Eve? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, capital C, who is blessed forever, amen. Now, what am I saying here? What is Paul saying? Listen, we try to create a world where we take God out of it. You want to know why naturalist people, which is the prevailing thought in all of our educational institutions today, if they're not Christian, you want to know why naturalist thinking is so bent on showing that there wasn't a creation, that we just evolved over billions of years? You want to know why? Because if there's a God who created, then we're accountable to him. Because it's his world. But if we can prove by our smartness, and he says we became foolish by thinking we were wise, that there is no God, then what that means is we can cast off all restraints and we can create our own truth. This is why it's ridiculous when people talk about truth in subjective terms. They'll use things like, oh, that's true for you, that's true for you, but that's not what's true for me. This is my truth. Have you heard that one? I just wanna let you in on a little secret. Truth ain't yours, it's his. You wanna know why? Because truth is not a proposition, truth is a person. Jesus himself said in John 14, six, I am the way, does anybody wanna know what he said next? The truth. The truth is Jesus. Jesus is the truth. What that means is all things are true because Jesus says they are. He is truth. But again, we wanna suppress the truth and the reason why we wanna suppress the truth is because we wanna create a world where there is no God because if there is no God, we're no longer accountable to him. We can do what we want. So we talk about truth like it's mine. Talk about truth like it's yours. Here's the problem with that mentality. No one can live in that world. 
If you try to go on 575 as an on-ramp, which is an off-ramp, and try to go on the wrong side, guess what? Your truth is going to get you killed. <laughs> With my truth, I can drive on the left side. Listen, this ain't Europe. This wrong country. But if you go over to Europe, try to drive on the right side. You see what I'm saying? It's ridiculous to think that truth is subjective. Nobody wants to live in that world. Nobody does. But yet we're trying so hard. And government is trying so hard to take God out of it. But you need to understand something. We'll get into this in two weeks. There is only one inherent authority, and that is God. Every other authority is a delegated authority from God. So the first institution God created was the family, husband and wife, mom and dad. Husbands and wives, moms and dads are not an authority in and of themselves. Their authority comes from God, so God has the right to command how they do marriage, how they do parenting. Government is the second institution that God created. And you can read it in Romans 13. God is the one who places governments in control, and they are subject to him because Paul says in Romans 13, there is no authority except God. And so when you have a government like ours is today that is trying to reject God and to say God has no right to tell us what to do, then that is the beginning of our end because our only freedom rests on his word. This is why. This is why our founding fathers, do you know the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, um, the Declaration of Independence, all that found its genesis in this book, all the laws we created in this country came from God's law because they understood something that we have so conveniently forgot that there is no authority except God. And the third one is the church. Pastors have a delegated authority from God and have the high honor an unbelievable weightiness of communicating God's word. But my authority is not in and of myself. This is why I say often, and I want you always to know this, this is not my church. I am not the senior pastor. You can go to our website, hit the about tab, hit leadership. Number one on our authority structure is Jesus is the senior pastor. This is his church, you're his people. One day I'm gonna die or move on, whatever God has for us, and this church will still be here because it ain't my church, you ain't my people. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he will build his church. I'm just an under-shepherd. And my authority is a delegated authority from the God of all authority. So the only way to govern rightly is as a delegate. Not a delegate. A, you know what I'm saying. A delegate. <laughs> Not delicate, delegate. I'm an, Paul says we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors. But our authority is in who our king is. But see, human beings don't want a king. We want to suppress truth. Who is God who has, what is right does God have to tell me how to do marriage? What right does God have to tell me how to do money? What right does God have to tell me how to govern? What, I mean, this book's 2,000 years old, man. It's so old. <laughs> sounds to me like it's pretty accurate. And so we try to throw off authority. You want to know why, and I'll get into this as we close. You want to know why we try to throw off authority? Because we don't trust our dad. We don't trust God. 
And the reason why we don't trust God is because just like the serpent lied to Eve, we think God's holding out on us. We want complete and total freedom for us to determine what is right and wrong. But that's not a world we want to live in. Because if it was, then that would mean God is not just. And think about it like this. If you got kids or grandkids, you understand what I'm saying. Would it be loving for me to tell my kids, hey, you can go play anywhere you want. See that yellow dotted line out there? That's fine. The double yellow? Yeah, man. I mean, that's your track. Just, I mean, start here and, you know. Would that be loving for me to tell them that? No, what would be loving is, hey, I've got a yard. I put up a fence or some trees. You can, you can play here. Anything you want to play, you can play right here. But human beings, like, if you don't let me play up by the road, I'm not free. That's what Eve said. If you don't let me have that tree, I'm not free. You want to know why she said that? That rhymed. I didn't really know that tree. I'm not free to bust out. You want to know why? It's because she didn't trust that God knew better. And that he only gave her that command because he loved her. Because he loved Adam. Church, can I tell you something? The only reason God ever gives you command, it's because he loves you. And he wants good for you. Let me end this with this. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But John 15, listen to verse 9 and 11. This is Jesus talking. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So notice he bases it in love. As the Father's loved me, I've loved you. Abide in my love. Love. Notice he doesn't say earn my love. Achieve it. He says abide. And the word abide means to remain, to continue in a state you are already in. We don't get in God's love because we obey. We get in God's love because Jesus obeyed and we abide in Jesus's obedience. You with me when I say that? But then look at what Jesus says next, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Remember this, obeying is abiding. If I obey, I'm remaining. Now, why in the world would God give me a commandment of obedience? Look at verse 11. You don't believe it, but I'm going to show it to you. These things, what things that I have spoken to you that my, what's that next word there? Let's try that again. That my, what? joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. Full. Let's try. Your joy may be what? Full. He didn't say so that your joy would be half full. He didn't say so that your joy would be kind of full. Now connect all this again. Father loves me. I love you. Abide in my love. How do I abide in your love? I obey your commands. And why have you given me those commands? So that my joy may be full. So that Jesus' joy, you know what gave Jesus the most joy? Obeying his father. You wanna know why it gave him the most joy? Because he knew that every command his father gave him was for his own joy even to the point where Jesus on the night he was betrayed said, Father, take this cup from me, but not my 
will, but yours. Even in suffering and death, Jesus trusted the heart of his Father. And he obeyed. Why? Because he knew what was coming. He knew the joy that was set before him, the Bible says. He endured the cross. It was for joy because he got his brothers and sisters back. And he knew that what God wanted more than anything was his kids. And so it got Jesus' joy to give back to God his children. And so every command, hear me, every command that God ever gives you, he gives them to you because he loves you and he wants your joy. So here's what I'm saying to you. Joy cannot be found in disobedience to God, but only in obedience to God. So hear me. The way God says to do your marriage, if you don't do it the way he says, ain't gonna lead to joy. The way God says, I mean, think about marriage. This is why I don't understand Adam and Eve. God said to them, you can have all these trees, millions of trees, don't touch that one. Then he said, be fruitful and multiply. And they're like, I don't wanna make love, I wanna touch that tree. I mean, think about that. Now, again, I'm not trying to offend your religious sensibilities, but I want you to understand something. God gave them a command to be fruitful, which means to procreate, but God also made it enjoyable. Why? Because in obeying his command, it's joyful. God didn't have to do that. You're like, oh, you're getting deep here. Yeah, this is why you should check your kids in, all right? Um, <laughs> But think about that. God said, eat all these trees. Procreate. Man, as a man, that's the two greatest joys. Eating? I mean, yeah. I mean, come on, right? I mean, it's okay to, um, even in that, you're like, oh, that feels, feels bad. No. God created that. The world didn't create that. So here's what that means. The world doesn't know how to do it right. God does. So do your marriage the way God says. Do your parenting the way God says. Here's a good one, and you love it. Do your money the way God says. God has a lot to say about it. First and foremost, he says, tithe. Why? Because that's mine. That's not a suggestion. God wants what's mine. No, he wants you to give him what's his. And if you give him what's his, his, his is amazing. He'll give you more. <laughs> but you want to know why you don't obey that command? Because you don't trust him. You don't trust his heart to be one that is good towards you. This is why when people say, I can't afford to, that's why we're like, no, you can't afford not to. Because what you're saying is, I'm just going to drive on the left side of the road. Well, guess what? God's against you. And it ain't going to go well for you. You drive on the right side, man. Freedom. Because that's what God says. Let me leave you with one last quote by C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorites. He says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those 
who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Now listen to this. This is so crucial. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. You want to know what hell is? Hell is God giving to people what they always wanted, which was a life without him. So we think, how could a loving God send people to hell? They go there on their own. What we should be talking about is why in the world would a loving God give his life to get them out of there? All that are in hell choose it, my friend. And Jesus even talked about this when he talked about the image of the rich man and Lazarus. Notice, if you go back and read that story, the rich man who was in hell, Lazarus, the poor man is in heaven. The rich man never asked Abraham to get out. You, know, you wanna know what he asked him? Give me some water. You know what people in hell are still doing? They are still trying to tell God what he should do. And for all eternity, it's that way. There's only two kinds of people, my friend. Those who do God's will and those who do their own will. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Why? Because those who think rightly about God as their father, they want his will done because they know that his will leads to the most joy. So which person are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for, first and foremost, creating us. God, without the doctrine of creation, the rest of it falls apart. Thank you that you made us, but you didn't make us to hold out on us. You made us to create a world where we were in perfect relationship with you and in perfect relationship with each other. But because of our sinful choices, we thought we knew better. But even in our sinful choices, God, your will was being worked out because one day Jesus would be born into this world. So thank you, God, that you didn't leave us in our sin. You didn't leave us on the road to hell, but you came in Christ and saved us. And we know, God, that without you opening our eyes and opening our ears to see and to hear we would never turn to you and say your will be done. It takes a changed heart and that only happens because you intervene. So would you do that now? Would you intervene in the hearts of people that don't want you as their father but open their eyes to see and their ears to hear the beauty of the good news of how you love them and how you have satisfied your wrath in Christ for them. Nobody looking around or talking, but if you want to trust Jesus, be saved. Be able to have access to the Father through the Son. Then that starts when he opens your eyes and you see the truth and you confess. So if you want to be saved, I'm going to ask you to pray with me to yourself. Not out loud, we're not trying to embarrass you. But it goes like this, say, God, Thank you for loving me, that you sent your son in my place for my sin to save me. 
Thank you for loving me. I give you my life. I ask you to save me, forgive me. I want your kingdom to come, your will to be done. Now, again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed that for the first time with me, I want you to do one thing for us. Would you just simply lift up your hand so we can know that you just did that? Just lift it up. Thank you. Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around. Just leave, lift it up. Leave it up just for a second. We're going to give you a gift. It's a Bible from us because we want you to know this God. When you get that, you can put your hand down. But then those of us in the house or watching or listening, that we would say we have God as our Father. But if we were honest, there are some commands that he's given us that we're simply not obeying. And the reason why is because we thought we knew better. Well, the beauty of God is he's long-suffering and he's patient, wanting all to come to repentance. And so all you gotta do is Say, I'm sorry, God. He's going to take you back because in Jesus, he's paid it all. God doesn't want to be estranged from you, just like I don't want to be estranged from my kids. And there's nothing they can do to never be my kids, but we can't have a broken relationship. And that starts to be healed when we humble ourselves. And that's all God is saying. Know that every command he gives you, he gives you for your joy. And if you'll obey him, you'll abide in that love. And you'll have maximum joy. God, we pray against Satan, his works, his effects, the lie that he tells us that we can't trust you because it's simply not true. The truth is we can trust you. You are good. You are God. You are our authority. But all those things is the best news because without you, God, we are nothing. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for commanding us. And give us the heart to continue to follow and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.